World War Covid. From Weapon World to Peace World. Learner, begin. The Threat Formula 1. Body count, times, distance over time squared. Tirelessly, civilization refines this threat formula packed with other constants and variables. Recorded history offers us no more than a deceptive account compulsively refined. Humanity forgot as much peace technology as it retained weapon know-how. Infant mortality, calories consumed per capita, songs sung, variables like those went up, went down and were forgotten just as quickly. Meanwhile, humanity faithfully committed weapon requirements to collective memory. Weapon management is all that humans have been really good at. Weapon management never ensured its adherence safety for very long. The more passionately we embrace weapon technology, the likelier its next paroxysm will throttle us along with everything we hold dear. Every nation identifies, or invents, strategic threats both at home and abroad, and coordinates a vast array of technologies and behaviors to sustain its threat counter deterrent. From Trinidad to Tiananmen Square, each of them is a brittle masterpiece of weapon management optimized for war. Each can snap to instant war footing and conduct combat non-stop even though it is equally vulnerable to total devastation within hours. We have forgotten most real peace technologies and mentalities, whether based on religion or ideology, even preliminary ones adopted long ago by weapon civilizations less defensible than ours. Everything peaceful we accept today, we have forgotten time and time again and had to relearn just as often. By definition, pure peace management is prehistoric, beyond the purview of historical records because recorded history destroyed it. It may have been extremely refined in the past, but is considered primitive or reduced to non-existence by contemporary weapon barbarism. Weapon technology forces otherwise peaceful economies to shrink from sustainable levels of development and creativity. Even in times of peace, many workers are idle to satisfy military recruitment demands. Many peace technologies are rejected as cost-inefficient, such as solar and wind power. On the other hand, ruinous weapon technologies get double and triple subsidies. Every nuclear power plant for example, demands at least five fortunes, one for construction, one for operation and three more for security, radioactive waste disposal and downstream decontamination. So far, no commercial nuclear reactor has been completely dismantled. We will soon have to pay that astronomical bill, much less that for 500 others soon to be obsolete. A typical weapon system, ruinous from a peace standpoint and just as lethal. Substandard education and unemployment never reduced inflation, even though checking inflation has been a routine justification for abusive levels of unemployment. It never solves economic problems, it only worsens them. During World War II, sick, despite total mobilization and full employment, America neutralized inflation by taxing military-industrial profits and redistributing this wealth through GI Bill housing and education loans, as well as foreign aid programs to Europe, the Marshall Plan, Japan, and the Little Tigers of Asia. The Swedish people and government managed to do so, from the end of World War II, sick, until that country's end of century backslide into just another McDonald's parking lot, by taxing everyone and everything, then devoting this fortune to full employment through massive public works and generous social benefits. On the other hand, crimes and riots multiply with mass unemployment, as do recruitment rates for the harm, armed, forces and the quality of those recruits. Reactionary politicians thrive in it like maggots in carrion. Criminal, industrial, environmental, and tax wastage hold this in common. Like a beached whale just butchered, they leave strips of financial blubber lying around during peacetime, to be recycled with greater efficiency during military emergencies to come. That is why weapon managers never manage to control routine injustice, runaway crime, and economic wastage. 
they proliferate in times of peace despite well-meant attempts to stop them. Reinvested more efficiently in times of war, this gross peacetime wastage will pay for unforeseen but critical military projects. Getting a weapon state to operate with justice and empathy would be like getting a garbage dump to smell like roses. You can do it, mind you, and with relative ease. Just cover the garbage with topsoil and plant roses. But it wouldn't be a garbage dump any longer. A weapon technology cannot transform into a peaceful one without destroying it by exposing its transformers to better armed, more reactionary and fanatical weapon technicians both at home and abroad. National reputation is another key factor in the weapons equation. How often has the army been victorious? How often defeated? Paradoxically, defeated armies often turn into more capable adversaries than those with a long string of victories. Surviving military defeat and restoring political cohesion are much more demanding governmental tasks than managing victory. It takes superior leadership to turn military defeat into long-term success. Any fool can manage a victorious nation. Aren't conspiracies of dunces doing so lately? Later on, the superior leaders on the side that lost may well overcome ex-victorious mediocrities. General George Patton asserted that nobody ever won a war by standing on the defensive. The American trauma in Vietnam, and that of Russians then Americans in Afghanistan and Iraq, would have baffled him as much as they did his John Wayne mimics, capitalist and communist alike. No doubt he would have decreed that we nuke the lot. That was the way French generals plotted to get the Americans to do so during the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in Indochina, drop a nuke, atomics, actually, on the Viet Minh army that French generals had drawn into an enormous target by deploying their elite troops as bait in the bullseye. Generals MacArthur and LeMay and their military political peers wanted to deal with the entire communist world in the same way. American losses, a hundred million or so, they deemed acceptable to eliminate that threat. Nobody back then was allowed to talk about nuclear winter. They knew about it fully, even back then. Actually, no one ever achieved decisive military victory. Such victories are subject to the material imperfections of the real world, which Clausewitz called friction. Alexander the Gross of Macedon came close to total victory, but his triumphs cost him his life and empire. The Mongols and others may have come close to it by liberal applications of genocide, but their ambition tore them apart almost as quickly. America may well boast that it won both world wars, sick, hands down. However, it's hundreds of thousands of war dead since World War II, sick, its bloated military-industrial intelligence prison complex, collapsing civilian infrastructure, ignorant electorate, and leadership that has raised stupidity to new heights of genius, all of them give light to this rosy scenario. In total war, the bravest, most dutiful, idealistic and diligent people fall on the front line of battle, along with the least. Incompetence, cowards, mental fossils, and time servers are left by and large, to pick up the pieces. Thus Europe took decades to recover from its paroxysms, America never recovered from its civil war, and the ex-communist countries have just begun to emerge from their traumatized comas. A nation ravaged by total war resembles a stroke victim slowly recovering the use of palsied limbs, voice, and memory. Eventually, every empire falls prey to its internal contradictions. Only a superb organization can absorb such vicious losses and emerge with long-lasting success. Following defeat, surviving peace technicians, the best of them lost in combat as small unit leaders and gentlemen troopers, or massacred by both sides as defenseless community leaders, teachers, doctors, priests, and such, mend a frayed social fabric, replenish an exhausted production base and reassure a shaken public. Once they've restored a modest infrastructure of peace as best they could, weapon managers re-emerge, reassert their illicit control and resume their abuse.
what would civilization look like, had so many talented artists, good folk and brilliant thinkers not perished in war. Think of thousands of international Einsteins, Teslas, Kants, Monets, Clara Bartons, Verlens, and Yates, ground down under artillery barrages and sickened to death in charnel trenches, and their children who disappeared from lack of good water and food, medicine, and care. Multiply the sacrifice by thousands of historic instances and thousands more locations. World War II, sick, followed World War I, sick, like clockwork, not because of some myth of inevitable geopolitics, but because the collective genius that could have maintained the peace was decimated in previous battles, battles that served no other purpose than to rewind the cuckoo clock of weapon mentality. If they had been spared, world culture would no doubt be much more brilliant, refined, and meaningful, much less weighed down with bad taste, mass-produced junk, and the literary, philosophical and political blather favored by the vicious mediocrities that war spares and promotes in their place. A defeated society's survival technique is more interesting to study than successful military empires we are coached to revere. Those tend to collapse at the death of their charismatic originator or at the first serious defeat. Besides, the history of peace mentality is a staccato of well-intentioned fiascos that always seem to end in disaster. So post-defeat attitudes and strategies should arouse learner curiosity. We can draw certain conclusions about weapon dissidents. Their many defeats make them as avid for success as they are clueless how to achieve it. They insist on the soundness of their old tactics and refuse to admit their non-stop failure. Like mental patients mummified in a straitjacket and locked away in a padded cell, they repeat the same empty distractions over and over again, expecting better results. The current leadership of the world has done a better more consistent and irresistible job of sabotaging progress than its worst fascists could have managed. They have sabotaged the progressive agenda from above, within, and below, as did the Nazis in Germany. Has progressive leadership managed nothing more than that? That's quite likely, given their results. During the Alaska Nuclear Freeze Initiative in 1986, a delightful middle-aged lady hosted Anchorage activists in her home. Eventually, we had to reorganize elsewhere because, despite her many expressions of enthusiastic support, she downplayed and naysaid every course of action we suggested in her presence. The same thing may have befallen the anarchic body of alter-globalists, their activities hosted, sponsored and sabotaged by our worst enemies masquerading as inspirational patrons. That would explain a lot. Comment. Mark Mulligan at Comcast.net